I grew up in a Methodist church. Well, actually, I grew up in a home with my family. But uh, I was raised going to, belonging to, a suburban Methodist church in the Maryland suburbs of Washington, D.C. And I was taken as soon as babies were permitted to be taken out of the house in those days, taken and put into the cradle roll and went right on up until I um, graduated from college and left Washington, D.C. for my first assignment in my ministry career. The assignment was to Texas, and that was a surprise. But what I mentioned this for is that I didn't remember us celebrating Advent in the church I grew up in in those days. Of course, these were the 1800s, so... (laughs) How many of you celebrated Advent in a church of your childhood? How many did not? About even. Various traditions celebrated Advent before others, but it has continued to spread in the churches in America. It's not just the liturgical churches of Catholic or Episcopalian, Orthodox, but on out into many of the other Protestant denominations. And um, not sure about the the independent churches. Some some do, some don't. But what is Advent? Uh, We just remind you that uh, Advent is from the Latin word Adventus. And it means the arrival or the coming. Uh, Advento means I arrive and here I come or something like that. And uh, the Adventus in Latin actually translates the Greek word in the New Testament, parousia, which likewise means the coming, the coming of the Lord. The second coming of the Lord, particularly when, uh, when in seminary they're teaching about Christ's second coming, they use the word parousia a lot because that's what they like to do in seminary, use words you don't know. And uh, then you gradually learn them and then you, you look like you know a lot when you come out of seminary. Um, Jesus said several times, I have come. I have already come. I've come that you might have life, and that abundantly. But Jesus also said, I will come again. In numerous places, in numerous ways, with parables, Jesus kept telling the disciples that there would be a future time he would return. This first time he came in great humility, actually in poverty. Um, Mary and Joseph were not a suburban, upscale crowd in the crowd. You were either very wealthy in the first century or you were living uh, just from day to day, uh, trying to get your next food on the table. Jesus came in humility the first time, but said he would come in glory the next time. 
There's much about that in the New Testament. And so that word is parousia in Greek. The four Sundays before Christmas uh, mark the season of Advent. There may be a few that stretch it out to five, but most of us celebrate the four Sundays before Advent, uh, before Christmas. And we prepare to celebrate the first coming of Christ into the world. We remember that he came in Bethlehem. So we're preparing to celebrate his first coming again. But as we do that, it reminds us that he said he would be coming again. The first followers of Jesus believed that with all their hearts. And they lived day to day and week to week expecting that he would be back soon. Um, One of the reasons they didn't write things down right away. One of the reasons why the written accounts of his life began to appear 25 years after his death and resurrection. And it was because the, the first eyewitnesses were beginning to die their mortal death. And it was important that what they had been saying was put down in writing. But they had expected him to come before they even died. Such was their belief that it would be any time. After 2,000 years, I'm not sure many of us get up any morning and say today could be the day. But that's what he taught. But we're a little bit jaded by 2,000 years. And he must have meant, I'm coming when you don't expect me to. Jesus said he was the long-awaited Messiah of the people called Israel. They were given hope by the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and all the prophets. They were given hope that God would help them, that God would come in some spectacular way and deliver them. So on the first Sunday of Advent, most of the communions of Christian uh, churches uh, focus on the, the word hope and what hope means to us. Our sermon text this morning features hope, and it is from First Peter, uh, Peter's first letter, his first chapter, verses 3 through 9, but let's pray first before we put that up and ask God to help us understand. Lord, you have taught us um, by what you taught your first followers that we need you to help us understand what you have spoken to others through centuries before us. And that we need your help to understand what you directed people to write down what you told them to say. So we ask this morning and each morning that we gather and every time we gather with just a few to study your word, we always ask you to help us understand. Um, Work in each of our minds to open our minds and in your spirit talk to us in what we each particularly need this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 
So let us read this sermon text from uh, Peter's first letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who are being protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last, in the last time. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you have had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then in verse 8, he says this, to those he wrote to first, and it really fits us too, although you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. For you are receiving, present tense, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God God. for his word. There was an an 18th century philosopher in Germany, also a theologian, named Immanuel Kant. He was uh, in the big leagues of theology and philosophy, had a huge impact on his day, wrote a lot. But he capsuled something in just a few phrases to provide three rules for happiness. Kind of funny for somebody who writes huge book after huge book of theology and philosophy. So Kant's three rules for happiness are something to do, someone to love, something to hope for. Pretty interesting that he would boil our happiness down to those three features. The someone to love, we sure understand that. Something to do, it seems like most of us have a lot to do. (laughs) Maybe some people in his day had to look around for something to do, but most of us, we'd like a little less to do. (laughs) I get up every morning and say, how do I get to do all the things I have to do? But I think he meant a calling. Something to do that mattered. Something to do that you contributed to other people. That people needed you, needed what you did. Something that gave you a sense of of, uh, self-respect and self-worth for what you were able to do and give. There are people who specialize in that but never have someone to love. 
Kant was right, someone to love is at the heart of life. But the third thing was something to hope for. Interesting. When you stop and think that your life is basically your past and your future. Your present can be very small, actually. It can be this moment, a few seconds. And what we have done already in worship is our past already. And what we've yet to sing is still in the future in time. Our past and our future are much larger than our present. And in our present, though, we're able to look back at our past and learn from it. And it is our past that helps us set our future. We don't hope for something that has already happened. But there are a lot of things that we hope for. Basic things, and in our day, a lot of extra things. But in most early days, basic things, food, shelter, clothing, was something people hoped for every day. They did not have security, food security as we call it now. They did not have that. It was a very basic hope. But we all have hopes. Success in our past, good weather, a great crop, plenty to eat. Perhaps we've had suffering in our past, bad weather, a drought, poor crop, hungry, all kinds of suffering, peace in our past, and our family grows, war in our past, disease in our past, and our family has lost. Our past has given us our experiences that shape what we hope for in our future. The past teaches us what to hope for. Israel had times of success, but many times of suffering. It is amazing to have the story of Israel. Really about 2,000 years of their story. And to know that their story as a unique people has continued another 2,000 years. It's an amazing story. We have it in our Old Testament as they were chosen by God, really brought into being by God, picking one little family, promising them that they would become a great family, that they would be blessed by God, and that they would be a blessing to the world. Three promises he made to them in Genesis 12, 1, 2, and 3. Israel's story is a, is a, a God's story uh, for the world. 
Uh, they are a picture of God's relationship with human beings. It's a picture for all the world, really. Uh, they struggled. They sometimes succeeded. Um, Israel suffered from wars with surrounding people. 2,000 years of conquest by neighboring tribes, Malachites, Midianites, Moabites, Stalactites, Stalagmites, <laughs> all of the Ite families were after them. And uh, then there were the greater empires, not just their neighbors, but greater empires that were taking over the whole world in that day. The Egyptian Empire, which Israel lived under and lived in for 400 years before they were brought out by Moses. Gaining their freedom, defending themselves against those trying to take from them, conquer them, sometimes losing, sometimes winning, gaining strength under King David. But Israel had times of success and times of failure and times of loss, depending on their relationship with God. They would obey God and listen to him and live in his way and they would prosper. And then they would forget and go off on their own, think they were doing it on their own, and disregard God, lose track as we saw King Josiah discovering that the books of God were lost for years. And when they lost their relationship with God from one leader to another, Israel suffered terribly. Then the Assyrians came along and took 10 of the 12 tribes captive, destroyed the northern part of Israel called Samaria and Israel. It was called Israel alone, the 10 northern tribes. Swept them away in 722 B.C., leaving only the two southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin centered around Jerusalem, which is why that area was called Judea for Judah. The Assyrians swept away the northern tribes, 722, and then the Babylonians overcame the Assyrians, and they came down and did the final job against the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin in 587, 586. And they were off into captivity for 70 years before they were permitted to come back and one of the empires I did not put up there, the empire that squeezed in between the Babylonians and the Greeks was the Persian Empire. Israel did not suffer under the Persian Empire. For Darius and Cyrus, two Persian emperors, set the Jews free from Babylonian captivity and encouraged them to go back to Israel and rebuild their, their worship and their temple. So I left the Persians out. But the Greeks were not far behind under Alexander the Great. And once again, Israel was made a subject of a mighty power who itself was then overcome by the 
greatest of all of those empires, the Roman Empire, with its with its insistence on law, but its enforcement with terror. And the cross was the terror apparatus of the Roman Empire. It was not a piece of jewelry. Israel suffered under all of those captivities, struggled, God, where are you? Why aren't you helping? The Old Testament is rich with their story. And it gives us a story for each of our lives. For in the tremendous history of a people, there is an example for each one of our lives. Succeeding, failing, prospering, despairing. And why? What's our relationship with God? How do we track that? So Israel struggled failed, suffered. Listen again for a moment. I'm not putting this up on the screen. The words of Isaiah in our call to worship. That's from that 40th chapter of Isaiah. A voice cries out, quote, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all the peoples shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Isaiah prophesying before the Babylonians wiped out the last two southern tribes saying to them, have hope, for the Lord will come. Wait. And he even said that. Those who wait. Sometimes that word's translated hope. Those who wait for the Lord, those who hope in the Lord, they shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Then look at the words of Jeremiah to that same southern kingdom before they succumbed. Jeremiah 29, 11. You know these words, many of you. Surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, not Jeremiah. Surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for your welfare, not for harm to give you a future with hope as they were being led away into captivity. The words they heard were Jeremiah saying, this is what God says to you. Wait, hope. My plans for you are not harm, but to give you a future and a hope. Israel's cycle of sin and suffering, repentance and saving, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus, their Messiah. That's the story Jesus explained. He is the one who the prophets foretold. He is the one 
who was that descendant of David whose kingdom would be forever. It was not a human child. Well, it was a human child, but it was not one of David's immediate sons. It would be his descendant. Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited one whom Israel was to wait for and the world was to wait for. There's a wonderful parable in our own time about this business of being in great distress and God coming to our rescue. It is a wonderful parable, not found in the scriptures, found in our own news. It is the parable of the mine disaster in Chile. I have a picture of uh, some miners in the country of Chile, South America, who were working in a mine called the San Jose Mine. Uh, The San Jose Mine is in the Atacama region of Chile. Um, And um, just to give you the, the, the picture, Chile is a nation of about a length north to south of 2,700 miles. Its width at most is 217 at, the, at most and 40 at the least. You've got a skinny little country running up the coast of South America with the Andes on their east and the Pacific on their west. But in the northern part of Chile, there's a tremendous mining region. Any of you ever been to Chile? Oh, come on, let me see the hand. Okay, a couple here and there. Well, Peter Shimmerhorn and I were talking this morning. He's been down there for the mining business. Corral him afterwards, and here's his stories. Um, on, uh, on August the 5th, 2010. So, okay, just 11 years ago. Um, the mine shaft in the San Jose, uh, which was three miles long, winding down, down, down from the entrance, down deep. Three miles of corridor, shaft, mine shafts side shafts going off, but that was the main whirling around almost in a spiral down deep at 2,300 feet. On the afternoon of August the 5th, the mine collapsed in, a, in an area, and it closed off 33 miners. Um, everyone knew it immediately. It was no secret. Nobody had to give a message. Everybody heard it from above and below. And everybody began to react. It was a terrible tragedy. The 33 were all ages, from their 20s to their 60s. They, immediately, they had a foreman with them named Luis. 
and uh, I don't remember his last name, but he immediately organized to see if they could get out. They could not get through this massive collapse of the ceiling of this mine. They moved a different direction. There were air shafts. They looked up there, and there were supposed to be ladders in them, rope ladders. They were missing. At the top, they suddenly sprang into action also. From the other side of the collapse, exploring where they could get them out. But it was so dangerous in that area. If they tried to move any rock, it would have brought more rock down on the ones who were trying to rescue them. They retreated. It's a fascinating story um, that has had several books written about it. But it's a wonderful story of hope. Those 33 men did not give up hope, even though they saw that they were trapped 2,300 feet below the surface. The foreman led them to an area that they could get to where there was a refuge, a shelter. And... um, It was about uh, 10 feet wide by uh, 10 by 5, a a, a 50 feet long, and it had long benches on it. And uh, they gathered there, and he immediately gathered them all, sat them down, and began to plan. And he and a couple of the, the most veteran miners went in search of another route out, only to come back and say there was none. Those miners had three days of food and water stashed in that shelter. Three days. There were 33 of them. The uh, foreman organized them and said, we are going to vote on every decision that we make. There are 33 of us for us to decide anything, and everyone has a vote, everyone has a say, but it'll take 16 votes for us to do this or that. And they all agreed, and they followed that through to the end of their ordeal. So the first week went by, They continued to organize what they would do, how little they would eat, how they would exercise, how they would prepare for being rescued. They hoped that they would be rescued. They did not give up. The first week went by. They are in darkness except for lamps that are battery-operated. The second week went by. The 15th day went by, and they were totally out of food and water. If you have lived with someone during hospice, you are informed by medical people that we live only so many days without food and far fewer days without water. 
On the seventeenth day, they heard the sound of drilling. They'd been hearing it, but now it was closer. And in one of the corridors outside that shelter room, a drill bit pierced through the rock. A drill bit that was six inches in diameter. What did the miners do? They grabbed a tool and they banged on the bit to let those above know someone was down there. The second thing they did was take the note that they had already written and taped it to the drill bit. And it basically, the note said, we are all fine in the shelter, all 33. In Espanol, estamos en el refugio. Está bien, los 303. And up that drill bit went, and they knew they had found them. By the way, this was the eighth attempt to find that shelter area. They had been drilling for um, 17 days. The men had been in there 17 days. Their food ran out two days earlier, their water. And suddenly this breaks through. And suddenly life is available again. For through that six-inch shaft, they could lower the palomas. In Espanol, paloma is a dove. They call these thin cylinders their doves that came down and sent them food, medicine, water, back and forth, back and forth, drilling more six-inch holes. At the same time, now that they had found the men, they sprung into action with major drilling rigs that could drill a 22-inch diameter hole that they could lower a tube down and put a man in and bring him up. When the disaster began, they immediately contacted everybody. The world responded to this disaster. The U.S., uh, other countries, and as soon as it was no known, the, the Navy of Chile was commissioned with building this rocket-like tube of about 12 feet in length and 21 inches in diameter with wheels that retracted to run up against the sides of the well casing. It's amazing what they did, how they did it. NASA participated, North American Space Agency, participated by teaching the ones in Chile how to care for people who are removed from everyone else in a space capsule. What's the psychology? What's the medicine? 
What's the exercise? What do we have to do to keep these people sane? The men worshiped together. Most of them were Christians. One of them was a preacher. Most of them were Catholics, but I don't think they're preachers in, in Catholicism, so he may have been Pentecostal or Bautista. <laughs> they worshiped. They taught. They each took a turn, not intentionally, but it just happened that each of them fell apart one day or another, and the rest gathered around them to care for them. Finally, after two months and nine days, they were able to bring them up. I think I have another slide. There's a picture of the canister that lifted them out. It was called the Phoenix. And uh, it pulled them out one by one, all 33. They expected it to take an hour to pull each man out, to lower and bring it up. Happened quicker. They also sent five volunteer emergency med tech guys from the Army and Navy of Chile and mining experts one by one down in different turns. In fact, the first time they sent a man was they sent a man down to bring the first man back up. And the first man down was an expert and he knew how, how to fit them. How they took care of those people, unbelievable. The thing had air conditioning in it. <laughs> it had emergency equipment in it. So one by one, they lifted them out on the 12th and 13th of October in 2010. And the world rejoiced. I say it's a parable because they were in darkness. They were, they were going to perish. They could not help themselves. Does it sound like things you've read in the New Testament? <laughs> Sound like things Jesus taught us in the dark, suffering, without life sources, going to perish. And then, coming from above, a rescue. And interestingly, they could not be brought up as a group. They're brought up one by one, just as we are. One by one, we respond to God's rescue. It's such a beautiful parable. I think that it gives us hope. In that whole process, no one gave up hope. The people above, their families, the men down below, they operated expecting to be rescued. And they were. This is what Peter was reminding the first followers of Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. Remember these words in our sermon, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. That's past tense. We do not need to hope for a new birth. We have been born again we have been lifted in the capsule. 
It's a past tense with us. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And we are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation. And its fullness is going to be revealed at the last time. Peter says, in this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you've had to suffer various trials, and we have. So that the genuineness of our faith, being more precious than gold, um, though perishable, is testified. May be found to result in praise and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with an indescribable and glorious joy. I hope it is, this Christmas, an indescribable joy and in praise and honor. For we are receiving, present tense, the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. O God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter in the stormy blast, and our eternal home. Let's pray.